0: Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. jump right in today. We got a lot of verses to work through today. It's all very good and exciting, but we want to make sure to have the time to be able to to spend on it that we need to. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. We're looking at verses 11 to 40. And uh, what we're going to find here in just a moment is this is uh, basically the gospel comes to Europe. Like that's what's happening right now. If you are here last week, you might remember uh, that Paul and his crew are on what is typically referred to as Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, he was visiting uh, with himself and Silas a number of different churches that he had helped plant. That he cared about, he was there to encourage them. He also, you might remember, was showing them the letter that said, hey, if you're a Gentile, you don't have to essentially become a Jew first before you can have a relationship with Jesus. He is enough. Faith in him is enough. And uh, along the way, he picks up Timothy, who will end up being a really uh, big part of Paul's life. And uh, eventually, he picks up somebody else, uh, the author of Acts, Luke. Um, You may have noticed it last week. I didn't take time to mention it, but the language changes to like a first person. They start to, the writing starts to look like we went here and then we went and did this, which is cool. I always love it when Luke is in the mix because we believe the spirit like inspires all of scripture, but it's cool when you get someone who's like, yeah, you're right there and uh, you get to see like the eyewitness account. There's sometimes a little bit more detail. He was in the mix, at least around it, uh, when everything we're gonna read about today actually happened. You also might remember last week that the Holy Spirit was very, very uh, active in keeping Paul and Silas and crew from stopping in what is modern-day Turkey and push them all the way to the coast, to the Aegean Sea. They land in Troas, which is where they pick up Luke, and Paul has this vision of a man across the sea from Macedonia, which is Europe, uh, saying, come and help us. And everyone agrees, like, this is the next work that God has for us and they start to prepare to head over there. Now there's an interesting distinction here. It's going to frame a lot of like what I want to get at this morning is everything we read about in the first part of chapter 16 has already been somewhat established. Paul has been there before. They've had a system that they kind of employed in these places and it's worked and God has moved, but it's like something that they had some kind of container to put in, some kind of frame of reference. What we're gonna see starting today is when they land in Macedonia, all bets are off. Like they have never been here before. They don't know how to minister here. It's brand new territory. Um, in fact, a lot of like the Jewish culture would look at Macedonia. It was Roman colony, tons of pagan God worship, doing doing what you want, when you want it. Um, it would stand in some opposition to uh, at least the moral code of the Jewish uh, Jewish religion, Hebrew faith. And so it was kind of seen as like the Wild West. This was like really going out there into brand new uncharted territory, but it's very obvious that's where God wants them to go. And so I'm gonna paraphrase like some parts of this passage today and and then I will actually read some, but you're welcome to follow along. And of course, you're always welcome to go back and read it at another time as well. But essentially, they start by getting on a boat with their crew and they head across the sea. Everything goes smoothly. They have one night stopover on an island and then they land in Macedonia the next day. That's great. It doesn't always go that way. We're gonna discover later in Acts that they had a terrible time getting back across that ocean. But so far, so good. They land, they make their way to what scripture describes as a leading city in the, in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony called Philippi. And it's a pretty smooth journey up until this point. But what we're gonna find when they actually start spending time in Philippi that it was not not long lasting. The smooth journey, making it to Europe, it was not gonna be the smooth, straightforward, understood journey that God was taking them on once they actually started doing stuff there. And let me let me just give you uh, some, some of the picture of what's going on here. In verse 13, they're in Philippi, they've made it there, and this is how uh, we begin to see the ministry start to happen. In verse 13, it says, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we suppose there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now that might not seem like anything very remarkable, but this was a very, very different start to their ministry than what we've seen them do before. Let me give a little bit of context here. Up until this point, when Paul and his team would come into a city which has been on the other side of the ocean, right? And, and there's been some established Jewish faith and, and some infrastructure there. What they would do is they would roll into a city, they would go to a synagogue, which is where all the Jewish people would gather to pray, to be together, to hear teaching. They would go, they would sit down, they would wait their turn to speak. And then when their turn came, they would stand up and they would talk about Jesus. They would tell them, hey, you know how we've been waiting for this Messiah? He is already here. His name is Jesus. He is worth your uh, allegiance And what we know from Paul's other interactions uh, leading up to this point, oftentimes the Jewish people wouldn't really accept that, or at least a lot of them, and then Paul would jump over and start saying the same thing to the Gentile crowd, the people who were not Jewish. But that's typically, almost every time, how the system would work as they were going to establish these Jesus followers in these cities. They'd find a synagogue, and they would evangelize, if you want to use that word, to the men who were gathered at the synagogue. But that's not at all how they start this new work in Philippi. Why? Because there were so few faithful Jewish people in the city of Philippi, there wasn't even enough to merit them starting a synagogue. The information I found was they needed 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. That's what you'd need, 10 guys to start a synagogue. There weren't even 10 faithful Jewish men in the whole city of Philippi. So their first kind of thing that they would try to do when they would go into a city wasn't even an option for them. So they're like, okay, well, we heard some people like get together down by the river or something like that. And so I guess we'll go down there and just see what happens. They go down there, so it's not a synagogue. And what they find is not a group of men. They find a group of women. So already we are off to a very different start in strategy as these, this crew of people are trying to spread the gospel in Europe. It's already not very typical, but that doesn't mean God's not at work as we're going to find. Verse 14, it says this, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So we know about Lydia is that she was ethnically a Gentile. She wasn't fully converted to Judaism, but she was a God worshiper, scripture tells us, that there was some kind of understanding and worship toward the one true God. And that's why she was down by the river uh, in that place of prayer. We also know that Lydia uh, was a seller in purple goods is what scripture tells us, um, Purple was like a high-end, like fabric. It was really difficult to dye material purple. Purple kind of signified like, um, uh, like royalty and just like high class. And so anybody who was kind of in the purple game, if you will, probably was making pretty good money. Uh, in fact, we we see pretty clearly that Lydia was pretty well off uh, as a businesswoman. She was a businesswoman. We see that she's not attached to a man. And at least scripture doesn't tell us that she was attached to a man, which would have been interesting and a little different uh, based off of that culture. And as we're going to find, she doesn't mess around. She's pretty straightforward. Um, She's kind of a powerhouse of a female businesswoman. She's like an ancient Greek version of like a girl boss. Like that's who Lydia was. And we're going to find that because Lydia was willing to partner up with Paul and we're gonna see what happens here. Um, that was like a really, really helpful thing to the ministry that was getting started. But again, not very typical of how things have gone. Here's what happens with Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. I just need to pause there. and be, Can I just remind us all once again, me too, that the Lord opened her heart the Holy Spirit was at work in her heart so that she could hear what Paul had to say. Not because Paul was really good at explaining it, not because they had a killer worship service, not because they had a perfectly employed set of uh, rational argument. None of that's why the Spirit opened her heart so that she could hear what Paul has to say. That is so important for us to recognize the Spirit is at work in people's lives. We don't necessarily need to have a like foolproof plan of like how to get somebody. We just need to have the courage to open our mouths where we see the spirit already at work. And that's what they did there. In verse 15, it tells us that she was baptized. She was baptized and her whole household was baptized as well. Here's another kind of awesome thing about Lydia. She is the head of the household, which again would have been kind of different or interesting And after that, here's what scripture tells us. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And what uh, Luke says here, and she prevailed upon us, which is kind of a (laughs) a weird way to translate that, right? But what it means is essentially she convinced them. She persuaded them. She bugged them and did not take no for an answer. Again, it just all reinforces. She was a powerhouse of a lady until finally they came and they stayed with her. We don't know where Paul and the crew were staying before this, but what we get to see is that when, they, when she brought them into her household, this becomes like the center of ministry for Philippi for this mission team. It kind of becomes their base of operations in Philippi. So we're not off to a super conventional start. No synagogue. A Gentile is the first convert. She's a woman, not connected to a man, who's also in the fashion industry, which maybe would make some like people a little uncomfortable. She also had a lot of money. The staunch Jews, even someone like the council that we've talked about the other week, they might have felt pretty uncomfortable. Like this is where things are starting in Europe. I'm not sure if we're off to the best start, but things seem to be working things as unconventional as they are seem to be okay and progress is being way, uh, made as weird as it might seem at least for a minute so after they meet and start staying with lydia they would be doing like a lot of the same things they had been doing they're going down to this place of prayer to talk to people they are holding most likely church services in lydia's home it was a big home there's a lot of people there they would gather together they would break bread they would sing they would pray together and as Paul and the team are out doing their thing, one day this happens. Verse sixteen: As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So this was a girl, a slave girl, who's owned by other people, who was possessed by an evil spirit. Like the original language calls it, the spirit of a, of Python, which which had to do with like pagan, uh, like Greek mythology, but people would have known this girl as a Pythoness, which is like the most hardcore name for, I imagine like a biker gang when I think about that, like a Pythoness, which also meant, here's why that's important, everyone would have known her deal. Like people knew who Pythonesses were. So she had this evil spirit. They used all the same bag of tricks probably a fortune teller would use today to try to trick people into thinking that their fortune was being told. And Bottom line, she made her owners a ton, ton, ton of money. But here's, what, here's uh, what the interaction between her and Paul and the crew ends up being in verse 17. It says, she followed Paul and us, so Luke was there, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So can we just picture this scene, Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas, they're just walking down to worship, to talk with people. And there's this girl behind them just screaming at the top of her lungs. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So we don't know exactly why this girl did this or why it was so problematic. Um, We're going to find that Paul was like fairly unhappy that this was happening but that seems interesting because at first glance, at least when I read this, I'm like, well, that just sounds like free advertising, right? <laughs> Someone's literally behind you screaming at the top of your lungs, hey, this is who these guys are. Come pay attention, right? Like a blaring like, uh, like road sign, like getting attention to Paul and Silas and the whole crew. But... This was something that Paul wanted to put a stop to is what we find out. And I'll be honest, I looked into this for a while. I tried to find a very clear consensus on like why this happened and why Paul was not super pumped about it. And I couldn't find one. I couldn't find a general consensus. There's a few clear ideas. I just wanna present them to us because I think probably all of them do have some merit and it's worth thinking through. The first one is this, uh, some people believe that the spirit was like watering down the message that Paul and Silas and the rest of them were teaching. The this, this spirit was saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Other people believe it's, it's a mistranslation, it's a way of salvation. And Paul and Silas and them, they're like, Jesus is the way to salvation. We do not want you watering down or messing up or bringing confusion to this message. Other people think the spirit was mocking them, kind of running around, these men are the servant of the most high God. Some people believe that that was going on. Other people believe it was causing a lot of attention to be put on them. And that was problematic for what they were trying to do, even creating confusion about what Jesus does in a person's life. Um, And then the last one uh, that some people believe, and I think this has merit as well. Every time we see Jesus throw down with evil spirits in the gospels or people uh, with the spirit of Jesus interacting with evil spirits, um, they seem to not be able to help themselves, but to speak what is actually true, that that Jesus was king or that these people uh, are servants of God. And I don't know exactly like what the motivation was here, But pick one and you could see how it could get a little problematic, right? And so Paul, in verse 18, this is what he ends up doing. Uh, It says, and this she kept doing for many, many days. So this girl is following around day after day, screaming at the top of her lungs. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command, not annoyed at the slave girl, annoyed at the spirit, this evil spirit. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So Paul does something that is objectively a good thing for this girl. She is freed from this evil spirit. And this is where everything seemingly starts to fall apart in Philippi. I'm going to kind of paraphrase what happened here, but the owners of this girl were not happy to find out that their golden ticket no longer had the spirit that would tell the fortune so that people would listen to them so that they could make money. They were really, really mad about this. You can come into our city, you can talk about these different gods, you can do your thing, I don't care, but if you mess with my dollar, I am going to be upset. How true is that of most of us? God, you can do this in my life, you can take this in my life, but you stay away from my money, that's mine. I get to do what I wanna do with that. We're not so different. But that is what led them to do what they are about to do. They brought Paul and Silas into the marketplace before everyone and starts talking trash about them. Like these men are Jews that are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Essentially what they're saying is uh, they're, they're advocating one king, one God to worship. And that, was, that didn't jive with how uh, the Romans viewed the spiritual world. They were good for you to worship whoever you wanted to worship. It just had to be signed off by the Roman government. And so they were they were taking this message of Jesus as the one king and saying, look, they're trying to put these customs on us that are wrong for us to do. Can I also say, though, there's no way these guys actually had, like, moral opposition to this, right? They were mad because their money was in jeopardy. They were not mad because these guys are breaking the rules. They were just trying to uh, get vindicated for this, loss that they've experienced of this of this servant of theirs. Eventually, we see that the crowd kind of joins in because we know it's really easy to frenzy up a crowd and they beat them up. And then the officials roll in and kind of make it more official. They strip their clothes off them, they beat them with rods. And then eventually, without any trial, without any due process, they throw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep a close eye on them, to keep them safe. The jailer takes this seriously and it says that he put them into the inner prison, the very, very deepest, darkest, max security part of the prison, and fastened their feet in stocks with chains. They were not going anywhere. They were stuck. Now, we don't know for, for sure what was going on inside the brains of Paul and Silas, but I think I would have a number of thoughts at this point if I was in their situation. I Christians at this time, this wasn't a foreign idea that hey, we might end up in jail. That's actually something probably we expect. But if I was in this position, I might have some questions. Like, man, did we do something wrong to end up here? Should we maybe have tried it a different way? Did I make a mistake, Smart? God, like, where are you? You asked us, you literally asked us to come here, so why have we ended up in jail in the deepest, darkest part of the jail held down with chains? This does not seem to be a situation where you can move or where, or at the very least what you would have imagined for this to look like for us. I'm really grateful that Paul and Silas probably have a much greater trust in Jesus than I would. But I think it's proven by what we find them doing as they were sitting in prison in the exact same scenario that we're describing. Verse 25, it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. What a wild, to me, what a wild response to this situation. Even if I was like, okay, God, I trust you. My mind would be like, man, I hope we get out of here soon oh man, what am I gonna say to try to get me out of this situation? How can I just make it through this? Very low on the list for me would be the thought, let's have a church service. Let's pray, let's sing. We literally have a captive audience. When are we ever gonna have this again? Let's make the most of this opportunity. That's not what I would be thinking, but it's exactly what we see Paul and Silas do. And then we see, because I believe because of their faithfulness, then we see what happens next. Verse 26 says, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. And this is how this is what Luke includes to make sure we understand what's actually going on here. A great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. This was a big earthquake. And here's what he says. These are the details he decides to include. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Okay, hold on. Like let's let's sit here for a second. Can we all agree, like, this is kind of an interesting outcome to an earthquake, right? The first one makes sense. All right, the foundations of the prison were shaken. Okay, all right. Yeah, that's what happens in an earthquake. But then the next thing it says is that all the doors were opened. Seems unlikely. But, you know, maybe there's like a lot of vibration and then they're bad doors or something and they popped open. Okay, maybe we could get behind that. But then the last thing they mentioned was everyone's bonds were unfastened. That's not how earthquakes work. (laughs) It seems awfully suspicious, doesn't it? This was obviously like the miraculous. This is God moving in this situation, moving through a literal earthquake. In verse 27, we get insight to the jailer and what happened. It says, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. This guy had been around the block. He knew what it meant. He also knew what failure meant. And certainly he knew that if these people escape and if a bunch of these people escape, I'm dead. So I might as well just take care of it right now. But verse 28, Paul cries out in a loud voice, do not harm yourself. Don't do it. We are all here. Again, what in the world? Like the vast majority of the people in that prison couldn't have been there by accident. It's not like every person who was in there was Paul and Silas who were put there for no good reason. Guaranteed this jail had a whole bunch of people who absolutely deserved to be there. Why in the world would they not have bolted? Whether it was the Holy Spirit who got them there, maybe Paul's leadership or influence, maybe they were really, really listening when scripture tells us they were listening to them. But every single person stayed, every person Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they give him a really straightforward answer. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night And this is such a beautiful picture. So let's read it slow. He took them the same hour of night and he washed their wounds and then he was baptized at once, him and his entire family. What a beautiful picture. of Him taking the water, washing these people, their wounds, and then they turn around and they baptize him and his whole family into a new life, a new freedom that he finds in Jesus. Then he brought them up into his house into his home and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. They had church. People were baptized. People prayed. They broke bread together. This is church that's happening in this jailer's house in the aftermath of an earthquake. I'm going to paraphrase the last few verses here. But the next morning, the officials hear what happened, and they were like, Get those guys out of our city. (laughs) So they tell the jailer, Hey, tell them they're free and to get out. Jailer comes and tells them. And then Paul does this kind of interesting thing. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it, but I think it's worth mentioning. He has like this ace up his sleeve. They come and they tell him, Hey, you're free, but I need you to go. And he's like, No, 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 I'm not going anywhere. He was like, Plot twist, I'm a Roman citizen so you tell those officials to come down here and tell me sorry themselves. The reason that that's a big deal is to imprison a Roman citizen without any due process and without any trial was a much, much greater offense than whatever bogus charges that they had tried to pin on Paul and Silas. But he waited till now to bring that up. I find that very interesting. He could have brought that up when he was getting beaten in the marketplace. He could have brought that up while he was in jail, it certainly would have secured at least a little bit of a longer process. But instead, he waited till after it was all said and done to mention, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, so you need to do this differently. Again, there's like a lot of opinions on like why he decided to do it this way. I think the most compelling is he did this to protect this fledgling church in Philippi and to inspire and encourage and give an example of what suffering through hardship is and not being able to pull the ripcord and be done with it. So he tells them, you come down here and you say it. And they realize that they messed up really bad. So they come down there humiliated. They're like, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. Can you please just leave now? And so he says, okay, we'll go. They stop by Lydia's house. Um, They encourage those uh, brothers and sisters. And then they leave. They depart on... To the next city. What a wild start to ministry in Europe, right? A lot went down in just like a week or so as they positioned themselves to continue to do ministry in other parts of Europe. And a lot could be said about this passage or parts of it, and they're all good, and I've heard many before, and they're all helpful. But here's what I feel like God has been kneeling home for me this time around it's just one thing. When I look at the big picture of what happened, as they moved into Europe, into this new land, this new culture, this new place of ministry that God told them to go to, as they went into it, nothing really seemed to go to plan. At least it didn't seem that way. This new land, place, people, territory, it required a new perspective and even a new way of doing things from these faithful people of God. When we look at the start of this church that Paul would grow to love, we get to see his love for this specific church through the letter to the Philippians. And if you read it, you can really tell he has this soft spot for these people, Um, but When he came and when he started that church, the three people that started, the three people we get accounts of was a high-powered fashionista, a former Pythoness, and someone whose current career is deeply corrupt and unjust, someone who who gets paid to keep people captive. That's the dream team that God decided would start this church in Philippi. I have been to some church planting conferences in my day, especially after college, when everyone thought that's the only way to do church is go plant a new one. And this is not the team that they would recommend you put together to start a church that will last and will go the difference, or will go the distance. I think that's really, really telling to us that how everything went down here was not what had come before, was not the strategy that they've employed before. It was a new way for a new place, this new way and these followers of Jesus' willingness to take a new approach. That's what we see here. But that can be really difficult, right? That can be really, really difficult to embrace a new way to be part of the new work that God is doing. We are so shaped by our two things, our experiences and even our intuition. What we have experienced tells us how things should go or how things shouldn't go. Or even though we know this isn't a good way to think about things or make decisions, sometimes our gut just tells us this is the right thing to do or this is not the right thing to do. And that can prove correct. I'm not saying it can't, but we also know that it can lead us astray, especially if Jesus was serious about this countercultural upside down kingdom idea of what it means to live for him. That most of what power and success and, stri- and striving can be turned completely on its head and that's where you're actually gonna find the way of Jesus. And I certainly pick up on this as we read this passage of scripture. It was glaring to me. This series of events does not seem ideal. Yet we see God move in powerful, powerful ways because Paul and the crew were willing to change their perspective and what they did. This is a theme that comes up more than just here. Jesus gives us a really, really visceral picture of this in uh, Matthew chapter 9. And there's a lot that goes into this story, but essentially he gives this picture. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. And I'm no expert on like wineskins. I don't know anything about wineskins. But the reality is if you put new wine in an old wineskin, it ferments, it expands, the wineskin breaks. So what Jesus is saying, you need a new container for the new thing that's being put into it. And he's saying, I am here to do a new thing. You can't take what your life has been and think that it's gonna be a good receptacle for the new thing that I am pouring out on my people. So again, I doubt anyone goes home and has a closet full of wineskins So probably that's like a removed example. Can I give you one that maybe a little bit more of us can wrap our heads around? My daughter's 11 and she just started middle school and it's a bigger school. There's a lot more people. And so we've been talking about it for a while and we're kind of like, it probably is time to at least give her a way to be in contact with us uh, because it's getting a little more difficult to keep track of her, right? It's our old elementary school is very easy, very contained, so it's probably good to have some way for us to be connected. Now, I work with middle and high schoolers, so I know very well how terrible phones can be for everyone, but we were like, this, I feel like this is kind of what we have to do. So I went on the hunt. I found the cheapest plan I could possibly find. No internet, no data, only minutes, only phone calling. Found the cheapest one. And then I went on the hunt on Amazon to find the cheapest, the worst, the most low-functioning phone I could possibly find. I'm talking about, like, that Nokia brick phone that we all know and love so much that probably is still in our junk drawer, many of us. That's what I was looking for. And I'm on the internet. I was like, I don't want to pay a bunch of money about it. I'm not going to pay, like, $500 for an old iPhone. I'm going to find the cheapest one I could find. I found this, like, Blue Zoo phone on Amazon for 20 bucks. And I was like, perfect. This makes all the sense in the world to me. I'm gonna take my cheap SIM card that I bought. I'm gonna take my cheap phone that I bought. I'm gonna put the SIM card in the phone. That's how that works, right? Then Abby's gonna have this this phone to at least be able to call us when the time needs to happen. Now, I also know myself enough to know sometimes I don't read through the instructions all the way. So I really need to make sure this is actually gonna work. I didn't wanna be like, tens of dollars into this thing and then realize it's not gonna work you know I'm super cheap what, what can I say so I, I started reading up on it and lo and behold there are phones that are so old and they're oftentimes it's met they're meant for like foreign environments places like China places like India uh, that will not accept, they do not have the components to be able to take a new SIM card with all the technology. I'm Again, I'm no expert on this either, but the new SIM card with all the technology that's in it, you could stick that into that old cheap $20 phone that I bought off Amazon, but it would not work. I was super surprised to hear that. I was like, I thought phones... All you have to do is put them in and then they'll work, right? Isn't that how that works? Isn't that how that should work? That My experience has taught me that and my intuition tells me that that's how that should work. But after much, much research, it became really clear to me, I can't put a new SIM card into an old phone. I, this will not work very well if this is what I'm trying to put it into, And it just crystallized this idea that if God is doing something new in our churches and in our lives and in our families, if we try to take the new thing that God is trying to do and shove it into our old way that we have been functioning, it's not gonna work very well. At the very least, we're gonna miss out on what he's doing. That's what happened here. If if Paul and crew showed up at Philippi, and said, listen, the system is we go to the synagogue. Oh, there's not a synagogue here. I guess we'll skip Philippi and we'll head on to the next town until we find one. They would have missed all that God wanted to do here. They could have looked at their circumstance ending up in prison and said, this is objectively bad. At best, we hope that God will miraculously free us out of this, but our mind is not on making sure that every prisoner and jailer in this place get to hear the gospel and come to know Jesus that hasn't fit into what we've experienced or what feels right, they would have missed the opportunity that God had given them. And I just think the same is true for us. And I'm gonna, I wanna wrap up with this. I mentioned last week, and I just, I'm up here twice, so I'm gonna say it again. It really feels like God is stirring something up in his people around the world and all kinds of people disconnected from each other and here, Like God is doing something new in his people. And really it's not new. I hesitate to even say that because it's actually a really old thing that just a lot of us feel like is very new. But I keep getting this sense that we are not gonna be able to be obedient and be a part of this new thing that God is doing if we still are living our lives like we have always lived them. If our rhythms in our life are the same they've always been, if our families function the exact same way, if our set of priorities are exactly the same, if our churches run the exact same way, I do not think we're going to be good receptacles for the new thing that God is doing. It's not discounting any of that from before. The system that Paul and crew had in Turkey and in Israel, it worked great, but it wasn't gonna work here. This is a new thing that God was doing. They needed to have a new perspective and even a new set of methods to be a part of it. And I just have this growing confidence that if we're gonna be part of the new thing God is doing in his people, we need to make sure to embrace that new perspective. We need to be sure to flex quickly so that we can obey the things that he is telling us to do. And sometimes that flies in the face of our experience and sometimes that flies in the face of our intuition. I can't tell you how many people I've had conversations with over the last few years who are like, it has never been more clear to us that we are doing exactly what Jesus has told his people to do. So why does it feel so gross? Why does it feel so hard? This isn't new information about Jesus, doesn't change who he is, doesn't change the mission. It's actually aligning ourselves to him so that we can be a part of it to a greater degree. Sometimes where we've been makes it really hard to embrace the new thing or the renewing thing that God is doing in our midst. But if they hadn't done it, I don't know if we would have got to see this beautiful picture we just saw. And I know for me, and I think it's true of our church, there are many of us who want to be good receptacles for the new thing that God is doing. And that can start in a situation like this, but let's be real, that grows legs as soon as we leave this place. And how we arrange our time and our relationships our priorities, our money, and everything else that we do. I think it's something to celebrate. I think it's something to be excited about, but we gotta know what it is we're getting into. And if we do, I believe that we will see God move in some pretty significant and powerful ways. And we wanna celebrate before we wrap up today by celebrating a new thing that God's doing in uh, a young man's life who's been a part of our church. Um, A few weeks ago, you may remember we commissioned Allison Whiteford to go to Haiti. She was going for a month. There's a number of young people who are kind of doing this year-long internship program thing uh, where they're going to a few different locations to um, get their feet wet in ministry and kind of ask God to like reveal maybe like a people group or a type of ministry that they would want, that he would want them to be involved with. They all feel a call to the nations, but uh, they're not quite sure what that means. And so we're really grateful that we have a church family that that makes that possible for them to to have a number of experiences like that. And so uh, I'd like to invite up uh, Dylan Pratt. He's a graduating senior, he just graduated. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And he's just gonna share where he's going and what he's gonna be doing real quick. And then we wanna close our time together by praying over him, commissioning him out as he goes to do the things that God has asked him to do. So Dylan.
1: Good morning. Um, Thank you all for being here. Um, Just in support of me, Um, both relationally, in prayer, um, just as brothers and sisters. I really appreciate it. It means so much. Um, I have the opportunity to leave this Saturday um, to go to the country of Senegal, which is in northern Africa, the western coast. I am going to the Wolof people group, where there is an American missionary couple um, involved in training and equipping disciple makers in their village and neighboring um, villages and cities To realistically just live life, but also to make disciples and live intentionally where they're at. Um, It is a Muslim and animistic context, um, so it's going to be very different for me, um, both in terms of a different type of people. Only ever been to Latin America in some urban missions here in the States. Um, So it's going to be a new learning curve for me, lots of new experiences. um, Also going to be by myself without a team. Going to have the couple there, but all new people. So it's going to be very different. Um, but through it all, I feel very excited, um, to grow and learn, um, just to see what God has for me, um, possibly for the future, but also, um, just here and now in the immediate how he will grow inside of me, um, but also open up my eyes to the world. Um, so there's going to be a lot of new and fun experiences. Um, I'm sure there will also be some difficult ones. Um, so if you guys would be praying for me in that, um, that God would open my eyes, my heart to see what he's doing in me, um, but also around me. Um, I'd really appreciate that.
0: Awesome, fantastic. And we wanna take the opportunity to pray for Dylan as he gets ready to head out and continue to pray for Dylan and uh, that he would be obedient to the voice of the spirit that he would recognize the new work that God is doing maybe through him in this experience and in him as he walks through it. So actually, we're going to pop off the stage. um, And what we'd love to do is invite anyone who maybe is connected to Dylan or wants to come on down. And we're just going to surround him, lay hands on him. um, And we're just going to pray over this experience and commission him out as he gets ready to go next week. Jesus, we are so grateful for what you're doing and all the different and unique ways that you do it. Uh, Lord, we're really grateful for kind of the fire that you've ignited in some of our young people to to go out to the world. Um, And Lord, we're also really grateful for the stuff here in Modesto that you're doing as well. God, we pray specifically uh, over Dylan as he gets ready to head out to this place that is new for him, uh, a a context that is new for him, a people group that is new for him. Lord, I just pray that uh, he would cling tightly to you as he uh, walks through these next few weeks uh, with this couple. Lord, would he be a huge encouragement to the people who are there all the time? Lord, would he be a catalyst for uh, how your spirit is already moving in the people that he's going to interact with? God, would his heart remain soft and humble? Um, Would he be quick to hear your voice? Uh, And Lord, we ask that you would grow him just in really significant ways through this experience. Lord, we know that there's really nothing inherently special about any of us other than God, you care for us and you live in us. And Lord, because of that, you use us to do impossible things. And so God, we just pray that, that Dylan would be quick to obey the things that you say. And God, that you would um, just do a very new and exciting and renewing work in and through his life. Lord, thank you for this church family who loves him, who cares about him, um, and who is supporting him all the way from over here uh, as he does the things that you have set before him to do. We love you. We thank you. In your awesome name, amen. (laughs)